This is Sam. This is Rebecca. This is Mackenzie. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on Southpaw, we have Rebecca and Mackenzie from the Warrior Sisters. So let's first start by explaining what is Warrior Sisters. So Warrior Sisters is a nonprofit that was started about five years ago. Our mission is to bring self-defense training free and accessibly to as many women as possible. So what is the origin story behind Warrior Sisters? So that's what it's about. But how did it start and why did it start? So Warrior Sisters was started out of a crisis that was happening on the U of O campus where there were a number of sexual assaults that were taking place. And most of the responses that we were seeing were reactionary. How do we um, deal with self-care afterwards? Things along those lines. However, we wanted to do a direct action um, campaign that was actually going to address this issue in a way that would attack it at its roots. So that is kind of the origin story of where we started. And so it started out from U of O or a college campus. Is it still mostly a college campus thing? Oh, no, I'm sorry. So it actually never took place on the U of O college campus. This was a just a reaction of women in the community who recognized a need that um, was basically to offer protections for women in an empowered basis. So. How could we support women um, across the city of Eugene? Our first training started at the Eugene Mission, actually, where we were providing free trainings um, for the homeless population that we have in Eugene. And then moving into a school, later to the Peterson Barn, then the Boreal, and then finally um, partnering with different martial arts um, places so that we could have a space in an actual gym. I'm sure there are many aspects to running an organization like this one. So did the founding members have experience in running a nonprofit before or a martial arts program? The founding members had not worked uh, with martial arts prior to this or with nonprofits directly in the sense of starting a nonprofit up. So this was a brand new endeavor. So were there challenges to that, especially like forming a nonprofit? Um, So absolutely, there were challenges in the sense of we realized that we needed to find resources in our community to help build up our tools. Um, However, starting a nonprofit um, was probably the easiest part of the beginnings of Warrior Sisters. The paperwork doesn't actually take as much time as you'd think. Okay. So what was the process of getting word out and getting participants and volunteers? So in the beginning, it was really just two women. Um, who had decided that they needed to get trained. So they went to the martial arts community in Eugene and were given some support um, from various martial artists and provided them with some curriculum. And um, in that sense, that's how kind of that began. Through that network, that's where we were able to find volunteers. But um, initially, volunteers and trainers developed out of people who were just participants. So once those two women, our founders, started the actual trainings, more and more women were coming and more and more women were inspired to join our organization. And that's basically still kind of how it happens, you know, like uh, that's how I ended up getting more seriously involved with Warrior Sisters. They offered a training. I got hooked. I wanted in. Tell me how I could possibly help. You know, I started doing um, things that don't really require a lot of training, like tabling or doing flyer outreach. And then I sort of slowly work my way into getting a little bit more training with our training collective and being able to assist in the trainings themselves. But was there interest right away? Um, I would say there was definitely interest in the sense that there was a real need um, where women wanted community that was going to make them feel empowered in the face of this crisis that was going on on campus. Um, There was a need to have a community to discuss the experience of feeling unsafe but to do that in a way 
that was going to make people feel powerful instead of making them feel scared. So you mentioned martial arts schools and how there was some initial support, but were they all supportive from the beginning or was there any backlash? There was no backlash. And thus far, we've only been supported by the various martial arts um, schools in our community. Um, we've been offered free spaces for training. We've been offered support through their trainers to provide um, our organization with some internal training as well. We've been supported all around by the different martial arts um, organizations in this community. So you kind of got into the mission of Warrior Sisters, but beyond that, is there a bigger thesis or is there a philosophy or principles you all abide by? Definitely. Yeah, I think first and foremost, what makes Warrior Sisters really different is that it is an empowerment-based self-defense class. And we really bring that into everything that we do. Um, and not just that, but that also we try to be as um, respectful of where each individual is coming from, not just being trying to be as trauma-informed as possible, and but as um, diversity uh, recognizing as possible, be that in person's ability or their background or their various intersecting ways that violence is brought into their lives. Um, which is something that made Warrior Sisters so, so, so different for me when I showed up um, and really made it feel like a welcoming community. Yeah, I definitely agree with what Mackenzie's just said. Um, I would also add in the fact that when we talk about self-defense, we're talking about it on an escalation model as well, which is that we don't need to just defend ourselves in physical altercations, but we can also learn to defend ourselves um, and defend our boundaries by practicing different verbal skills as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to stand up for our boundaries is the core, is the base of self-defense and building that confidence. Yeah, we really talk about, you know, workplace, sort of horizontal violence, how to break down those, those difficult conversations around setting boundaries. You know, we talk about that in our self-defense classes, and those are really skills that people practice every single day. I mean, people aren't going to have to physically defend themselves very often in their lives, hopefully. But people use those boundary setting skills and those empowerment skills every single day. And they tell us that in our trainings. You just said something horizontal. What was that? Uh, horizontal violence, like the principle of um, it may be someone who's on your same peer level or in your same like power. Like say you're in a workplace and, um, you know, you're having a coworker who is kind of trying to like do something that would be detrimental to your like job status or something, you know. So sometimes that can be just peer-on-peer -peer violence that's sort of supporting a larger structure of uh, oppression within, an, within a community or workspace or something like that. The one other thing that I would add is that our philosophy is based on the idea that all women, all people can learn how to defend themselves and that regardless of your background or um, ability, anybody is going to be able to take tools from our trainings and apply them to their own lives in unique ways. So everybody is capable. And something else you said, trauma-informed. So what do you mean by that? Trauma-informed practices are something that are starting to get a lot more um, voice in various different communities. So trauma-informed care is in healthcare, but being trauma-informed in self-defense is sort of a recognition that every single person who walks in, walks in with a story. They walk in with a history of various levels or um, various forms of trauma, and that um, those things come up in different ways for everybody. And being like knowing that as a story, so being careful in the assumptions that we make about people and being um, compassionate when those things come up and finding ways to make self-defense accessible for people who have a history of violence, who have a history of, you know, whatever it is that comes in that can present itself in as many different ways as there are people. But that is sort of a central tenet that we allow people to we believe people when they say to us, I need to do that in a different way. Um, because of whatever, and we help them negotiate how that's going to look for their body and for their person. The one other element I would add to trauma-informed care, which Mackenzie just so beautifully described, is that when we're looking at a past that possibly includes a traumatic history, that we also take into account that we have strengths that come out of our past, even when they're 
horrible events that have knocked us down, it builds us up and makes us stronger in the end um, a lot of the time. So being able to see people not just as a deficit, but being able to see them as a strength as well. Has Warrior Sisters noticed that a, a lot of the participants who do come in have never trained anywhere else prior? That is absolutely the case that we tend to see is that the majority of people and participants who come to our trainings um, haven't had either funds or time um, to schedule trainings. So this is often their first time being able to access self-defense classes. Um, So again, most of our participants, um, based off of surveys that we've taken, are have suggested that they would not be able to afford a self-defense class or they wouldn't be able to make a long-term commitment. So our trainings are always drop-in and there's no sign-up that's going to have to happen ahead of time. And that basically makes it more compatible to our uh, community schedules. From the martial arts world, I came up in the martial arts and we usually call people students, right? But I noticed with you all, you say participants. Is that an overarching philosophy? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the full title of our organization is Warrior Sisters Collective, and that is a foundational principle for us is that we're building a community that is built off of resilience and strength and accessibility as well. So to say students implies um, oftentimes a hierarchy, and we really wanted to create um, a horizontal structure that was going to create space and platforms for all the voices. So Um, Yeah, that's why we use that language. Yeah, I think it also really also lends to um, the philosophy that we take in our training that is really about retraining them to think of themselves as powerful, right? They're not there to be the student and to listen to us and to look at us as the ultimate authority on things. We want them to move out of that each and every training, whether they come once or whether they come for our entire series, walking out, seeing themselves as an authority in their defense and in their empowerment. Now, besides just the cost, did you all also find there was something lacking in pre-existing self-defense programs and curricula, or was the problem in self-defense a general lack of curriculum and evidence-based research? I would say more of the former, that a lot of the self-defense classes that we had experienced um, revolved around, especially when talking to women, about hiding behind your boyfriend or walk in a group and there was a lot of um, undertones of victim blaming that we were experiencing in the initial self-defense classes that our trainers had gone to. And we wanted to, again, transition out of that. So um, having a targeted focus on how we can empower women rather than tell them that by themselves, they're always going to be at risk was something that we were looking for in our curriculum. So how did you all create the curriculum and also figure out what order to teach? Um, So our curriculum developed initially on the verbal side um, from experience that the trainers had in the community. So we had trainers that were coming from working at Whitebird, which is a trauma-informed clinic um, in the Eugene area. That's really wonderful. And so from there, we learned a lot about de-escalation techniques. Um, We also had trainers that were coming from working in the nonprofit world, again, with not with trauma informed care. So bringing trauma informed care practices into our community. Um, And then some other trainers that were previously involved in the empowerment self-defense movement back in the, I think, 70s, I want to say, contributed a lot to that curriculum as well for the verbal side of our trainings. And then for the physical, we based most of it off of the Krav Maga training that we were getting and then adapted it to the simplest and most practical skill, set, skill sets for women. And so when we're thinking about having a mixed bag of more experience versus uh, first timers in our group, we, we pretty much always include at some stage, you know, the, the very, very basics of, you know, what is a cross, what is a jab, like what is our, what is our stance and, and every single training. And then at, at, we will provide sort of individualized attention to people, you know, people who we know are a little bit more advanced. We will give a range of both abilities for like the range of abilities that are in our class, but also for experience levels. So, you know, if we're doing like a certain skill set, we'll say if you're more advanced, you might add in you might do this faster or you might add in this extra thing. If you want to go slower or you this is your first time here, just stick with getting this form done. So, you know, it 
it's less complicated than it sounds like, I feel like, uh, as long as you're willing to give that individualized attention to people. Right. So we always have our curriculum is always going to embrace slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And so we'll always go back to those basics and everybody needs practice and care around that. So in that sense, whether you're advanced or if you're a beginner, everyone's going to be practicing a jab cross, a snap kick and a knee at some point in a training. How often is the curriculum updated? <laughs> we have been through several varieties of our <laughs> curriculum, depending on the types of training that we're offering. Um, and I would say that we are rethinking them on a yearly basis. We consider, do we need to make an, adjust an adjustment or not? Um, or basically, depending on the type of training that we're offering, how should we adjust it to that community that we're going to? The reason why I ask is also, having grown up in martial arts, I have seen a lot of places where they never update the curriculum. <laughs> Even whether it works, it doesn't work, they don't care. It's always going to be the same curriculum. So just the fact that you all think about it and do regularly update your curriculum, that says a lot right there. Yeah, we're constantly engaging in ongoing training for our trainers. Um, for instance, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest trainer come down from a gym in Corvallis. And based off of her feedback, we're updating all of our ground survival techniques. And we're also always collecting feedback from our participants as well, um, and which is something that we really take seriously and always try to integrate their feedback. Absolutely. This has already been touched upon, but I want to expand on this about the misconceptions people might have or the priority of things that need to be taught. For instance, de-escalation or using uh, verbal self-defense. So what are some other practical concepts or even with those concepts, can you elaborate on them? But things that people don't normally think about or have stereotypes about self-defense and they think it involves this, this, and this, but in real life, it involves other things that people might not consider. I guess what I guess what that brings up for me, and tell me if this hits on your question, but I think we spend a lot of time just trying to get our participants to a place where they believe their own first gut, their, their own gut reaction, right? We talk a lot about when you're in a stressful situation where you might need to first, where you might need to engage in a de-escalation technique, like our first reaction is to kind of say, like, is this really happening? Is it? But but maybe I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding what's going on and how like that critical reasoning that happens is is important. And also that we have to get our participants to a place where they can say, like, I'm going to assess the situation and then I'm going to believe myself that I feel like I'm in danger right now and uh, then how to move into those techniques. I feel like that's the, sort of the first barrier that we have to overcome. Um, and we spend a lot of time talking about it or, um, you know, kind of going through little exercises around what does it that feel like in your body and what does that feel like in your mind, uh, recognizing those very first red flags that happen that can cue someone in to being in a dangerous situation. Yeah. Um, trusting your gut is definitely a huge part of what we're, what we're doing in our trainings. So how important then is listening to the participants and hearing how they're feeling, their stories? So important. I mean, so, so important. Whether or not we're using language that can help people, uh, that can help people understand what we're trying to tell them, whether or not we're using language that makes people feel empowered when we're when we're talking about those sensitive topics, those are, those are all things that really require a conversation with each population that we move into, whether we're, um, you know, doing a, a training for like a workplace or whether we're doing a training just with a, you know, in a new area of the community, each sort of subset of the community has its own kind of culture, you know, so um, always trying to interact with that uh, on, a, on a really open and communicative level is really important. Something that I'd like to add is that with Warrior Sisters, we're not a martial art. Um, and that seems to be like a heavy misconception that's taking place sometimes with participants as they come in thinking that they need to be training all the time. They need to be a particular body type, that there is a right answer when you're in a stressful situation. By not being a martial art, we're not saying that we have an exact prescription for you. We're saying that we have tools that you can use to your ability and to whatever your comfort level is. So that also includes the verbal part of our self-defense. 
which is in awareness and in taking up space with your voice. So if you are able to recognize when people are manipulating you to get a desired behavior out of you, then you can then better assert your boundaries. And I think allowing people just a safe space to uh, sort of analyze their own strengths. Like when I came to Warrior Sisters, I found out that I pack a mean elbow. Like I pack a mean elbow. So just like getting people the experience just to see what they are good at, what their body is already good at doing, gives them just that base level of muscle memory that they can, like, they know that they can do that. That, like, that's a reaction that they may have if they're in a stressful situation. Exactly. That any of these tools can be used by anybody. That's the number one thing is that self-defense is accessible to everybody and that you don't need to be perfect and you don't need to be what you envision on a martial arts poster to be able to defend yourself. Yeah, that's something I've noticed myself is that martial arts comes with some baggage and expectations that can be disempowering and often even delay people's progress because they have this idea of how it should be. And sometimes you just say, forget about your idea of what martial arts should look like and just do what you can do. Yeah, I mean, so something that we see sometimes is that with a martial art, it involves a heavy commitment to not just practicing a skill set, but also oftentimes to a particular mentality. And a lot of the women that come to our trainings are looking for a way that they can defend themselves in their lives without taking on additional commitments or additional responsibilities. They're looking for a tool that's going to fit into their world as their world is. And that's what we hope to provide. Did Warrior Sisters come to that understanding from the get-go? That's a great question. Um, I think it came pretty initially because we've tried from the get-go to avoid saying martial art because of the distinction that we are not projecting a type of philosophy necessarily or a type of recipe um, for successful use of the tools that we're providing for our participants. So what we're the only philosophy that we're trying to get across is that you can do it, is that empowerment basis. And the tools that we are showcasing, whichever way they come out is going to be the correct way for that situation, for that participant, for that woman. So we've steered away from that terminology from the beginning, although always said that we have pulled all of our tools, all of our physical and verbal skills from the martial arts community. So what are some facts about real life self-defense scenarios for women that people might not be aware of, but probably should be aware of? I think just the fact that self-defense does actually help prevent violence towards women in particular is sometimes a myth that we that we have to bust like it that it does actually work even the women who sometimes show up to trainings they're like right but but am i actually going to be able to do it in, you know in the moment and we do have some some research that has come out actually through our very own u of o has a really amazing um a researcher there who has come out with a really great set of statistics around like does does this actually help prevent violence or sexual violence and and the answer is yes and that's that's I mean, not every single time, and we talk about that, but that it, but that it can be a really useful tool, even if you aren't a quote-unquote martial artist. Yeah, I'd love to add on to that a little bit as well, um, which is that the thing that people often don't realize when it comes to women's self-defense and the need for it is how we have to use these tools on a daily basis in our lives. One of the number one thing that we hear from our participants is how they use the verbal tools that we provide and that we practice in that space on a regular basis. So how do I recognize when someone is trying to change my behavior, acknowledging what those red flags are, being able to lay a strong boundary, being able to de-escalate a situation before it gets to a point of physical violence. All of these tools are things that we have to think about on a daily basis as women in our lives. And so being able to practice them in a safe community and supportive community as well is extremely important. A lot of people think about self-defense like there's a mugger or some stranger that might attack me. And even for self-defense, that's specific for women. I've seen it taught in that way. But when you say daily, then you're talking about people you know, people in your life. 
And I think that's another important part that maybe because you two are training in it all the time that you're very well aware of. But for a lot of people, they don't think about self-defense in that way. They think of the other. They think of strangers when it's actually probably more common that it'll be, like you said, horizontal violence, maybe somebody you know or somebody in your community. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about self-defense, what we're looking at is we're looking at a power struggle that's essentially taking place. And when we think about how people assert power over one another in a daily exchange, that's when we start to see um, some of the issues that we're talking about. So for example, um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody at a workplace, this is a common example that we have, but starts to put their arm on top of your head and they're trying to be casual about it. But in reality, what they're doing is they're trying to take up space um, from your bubble or maybe they're trying to assert dominance over you in that situation. And so being able to say, hey, when you put your arm on top of my head, it makes me feel like you're taking up my space and I need you to step back. Being able to assert a daily boundary like that allows us to have one more voice in our daily circles and lives, so in work and relationships, but it also allows us to be able to take up that, again, reclaim our space um, as we walk through the world. Yeah, we spend whole exercises just practicing saying no in like as many different situations and ways and tones as we possibly can. So your boss asks you to stay work to stay late at work again and we practice saying no and then we unpack the various different like uh, reasons why you might not be able to or why you might not feel safe and just practice like scripts around various ways to apply the no in (laughs) various situations exactly we find so often that as women like we've been socialized in a way to be accommodating to put our needs Um, below the needs of others around us. And so just practicing what it's like to put yourself first is a foundational principle of the self-defense training that we offer. And this was mentioned previously about trusting your gut, but do you do any training specifically on leaving abusive situations, whether they be workplace or personal, or when to recognize a situation that is becoming toxic or dangerous? So some telltale signs. I would say that that is certainly a, uh, that is at least a subject that we touch on in most of our trainings, especially the verbal trainings. Um, you know, when, when to recognize red flags, what, what red flags can look like, and then how to, how to keep yourself safe in those situations. And, you know, a big part of that, I think, is, um, presenting that class in like in like a a a group a a safe community space reminding people and women that they have community resources and that you know we're there and that other and that they can always reach out to people around them to keep themselves safe and that if they do find themselves in that situation yeah to tack on to that basically um while we're not specifically saying how do you leave an abusive relationship we're definitely doing trainings on how to identify when your rights are being abused so we do and a lot of that is just based in understanding again and having awareness about what we have the right to so one of our exercises is based off of that where we will just go around and say what is the right that we feel like we have today that we're going to use to channel Um, our training. And that will be sometimes simple as I have the right to say no. I have the right to feel beautiful. I have the right to take up space, to change my mind. And the things that um, people say when they're in these, um, given that opportunity to declare how they feel like they deserve to be treated is super empowering. And sometimes it just takes hearing that and verbalizing that to recognize that you need to get out of a situation. And then again, that's when we often lean back on our community and show that we have a support system here that is willing to help you with whatever is necessary. Are there some examples of what might be red flags? I know it's idiosyncratic to the situation and you all are covering like the core concepts, but let's say they're just the basic generic ones that can happen often that we just, because it happens so often, maybe we ignore or don't think it's a big deal until it becomes a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So specific red flags are always, there's a whole laundry list, obviously, of what we could get into. Um, but examples could be not having someone respect your right to privacy um, and intruding into your personal space on a regular basis. So um, that could look a variety of different ways and recognizing that is really difficult. So, so one thing that we will do is practice scenarios. We'll read a scenario out and then women will choose whether they like on a scale of the most healthy relationship in the world to the most unhealthy relationship in the world. They'll move across the room and we'll discuss why we feel different ways. Um, and that's part of what we are talking about here is that um, everyone's experience exists on a spectrum. So again, like what could be a very strong red flag to somebody might not have been thought of before. And so we need to discuss that with the community and say, like, is this actually um, a problem that I wasn't paying attention to? Or is this something that I'm more okay with because of my personal boundaries? It's pretty extensive. I think another one that we practice a lot is recognizing when people are continually not hearing your no, right? So they're asking in a way that is trying to either be coercive or trying to convince you to agree with what they're doing and they're not hearing your no, no matter how many times you say it. So we practice recognizing that uh, both as a red flag and then um, sort of particular um, strategies for communication around that, which is kind of something that we call the broken record sometimes where you just say, you just stick to your guns and say, no, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. Or like, no, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. Um, and recognizing that as an abusive behavior and disengaging with it as a, either as a relationship or as a communication. So um, I'll just jump in real quickly with the concept of red flags again. So um, what I was saying before is essentially that a red flag to somebody might be a yellow flag to somebody else or might not be a flag at all. But what we can do is look at the foundation of a red flag and break it down into ploys. And those ploys we can get a little bit more specific about. So how are people pushing our boundaries? Um, so ploys that involve making you feel guilty or flattery even, being overly flirtatious to try to make you feel a certain way so that you will change your mind or persistence, which is what Mackenzie was referencing just then. Um, or it could be a, you owe me for this situation and now you have to do this for me. But recognizing ploys is the foundation of a red flag. So whether it's a yellow flag or a red flag, how does it feel? What should we be honing in on within our body? It's going to feel different for every single woman. Um, but the example that I use is that oftentimes it comes with reflection. So if you've ever been up late at night, you're trying to fall asleep and you can't because you just thought of the perfect retort to a comment that someone made to you earlier in the day that you weren't able to say prior. Um, that's my example of, oh, my gut was telling me something, but I couldn't put my finger on it at that moment. So a lot of this is going to involve reflection and you have to think about what does it feel like for me when I'm uncomfortable and create space for that because you don't have to have the ability to label why you're uncomfortable. You just need to know when you're feeling that way. And that's going to feel different for different people. It could be that your brain is not putting together cohesive sentences all of a sudden. It could be that you feel shaky. It could be that, um, you're hyper aware in a situation. It's all going to look different and feel different depending on who you are and what your past experience is. Now, even within the name Warrior Sisters, the term collective is a part of it. And something you two have mentioned frequently in our talk is community. So why is collective support group community so important, especially when it comes to safety? I think if we look back onto the history of different social movements throughout time, essentially, what we see is that they come from people working together. It doesn't come from one single voice. It takes a movement to make change happen. And that is the foundation of what we are trying to do. We're not just trying to say that every woman as an individual deserves to be protected. That's true. But we want to change our culture. We want to change our society. And to do that, we have to band together and show support and push through the really difficult times that we're going to be facing in the process of doing that. 
So having that community ensures that we are not just an individual, we are a movement. This was mentioned before, but community creates resources you can lean on. But on top of that, does it create emotional and psychological protection as well for the members because there's others in it? Oh, absolutely. I think that having that support system around you, not only of people that you know you can lean on for more resources, but to make you feel better about your progress and your growth makes people feel like they can commit to themselves in this way, that they can commit to acknowledging something that's very scary in their life and creating space to do that in a way that's going to make them stronger in the face of that fear. So I know that's how I started with Warrior Sisters. When I first came to trainings, I felt very uncomfortable with a lot of the skill sets. For a first time or the first time you throw a punch, your arms feel like spaghetti. It doesn't feel good. Um, but having a support of women around you who are saying, oh, don't worry, I've been there. Um, you're doing so good. Just keep it up is going to help me feel like empowered in that space. And something else that we that we talk about a lot is in our in our classes is bystander intervention, um, and what that looks like and what the techniques are. So, someone who is not the person who's directly being attacked, having skills to be able to um, distract or, or intervene in a in a situation that's putting someone else in danger. And I think that that really feeds into our sense of community. You know, they see. Other people here are gaining skills, not just to stand alone and defend themselves, but to defend other people in their community so that they know walking out of that class, not just that they have self-defense skills, but that other people have intervention skills so that if they're walking on the street, other people in their community have skills that are going to help protect them as well. And I think that's a really powerful message. That actually also kind of goes back to some of our origins as well, which before we started offering regular trainings, one of the intentions was to form essentially a coalition of trained women who could go out and walk the streets and protect other women as they were, you know, moving about the world. And so uh, the end game has always been how do we support the women in our community? It was never about an individual. Although we do, of course, offer like. Sorry, that just sounds really bad. All of a sudden, I'm like, it is about the individual and an individual's needs, but it's also about supporting our community as a whole. Now, you two might have already answered some of this, but what are some common questions newcomers to your classes might ask? Does this really work? <laughs> <laughs> Am I doing this right? Is it, is it supposed to feel this awkward? <laughs> Yeah, what we a lot of times it's just women thinking like they don't have the ability to take on a really strong man or attacker. And so there's a lot of hesitancy in that. Um, but we we show them over and over like it works, it works. So the questions themselves that they might ask also reveals then maybe the cultural conditioning that they went through. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And when we think about how our culture talks about women, so often it's that you're weak or you don't stand a chance against someone stronger than you. And what we're trying to show is there are variations in strength and there are ways to manipulate those um, conditions to our favor. Yeah. And I think a lot, even, even aside from the verbal questions we get, we get a lot of just, um, sort of like questioning behavior, right? Almost everybody, the first time that they like really throw a punch on the punching bag, they like stop and they kind of look at you like, was that okay? Like, I just hit that really hard. Like, oh my gosh, you know, and they giggle and they kind of like laugh and then they do it a little bit more and they stop and they look around like other people are also doing this. This is okay for me to be, you know, saying something that's really forceful and really aggressive you know, as a woman is always like a little bit of a, a stumble step to get them started. And then when they see this group of powerful other women just showing up and really practicing these physical skill sets, they slowly start to come into their own uh, sense of physical power. Absolutely. And that actually reminds me of another question that I hear a lot, which is, um, is this okay when working with a partner? So if we're practicing on pads and one person is holding those pads, what I hear so frequently is someone saying, are you okay? 
is it okay? Do I need to tone my power back? And there's just this amazing level of consciousness um, that our participants are showing towards each other in regards to showing strength and also to um, making sure that everyone feels comfortable. Now, you're dealing with possibly some pretty scary scenarios. So how do you then also create a safe and comfortable environment where people who need this training want to keep showing up? So we start every single one of our trainings by adding in the caveat of whatever we are doing today, it's up to you according to your comfort level if you want to be participating or how you want to participate. So based off of not only your comfort level, but what you feel um, for your own body type is good for you, um, it's going to be up to you how you want to participate. So it does come up frequently um, where a situation is overwhelming or someone doesn't have the confidence yet to engage. And so oftentimes women just say, okay, we're going to step back and observe right now. And we totally support that. And we don't question that. We believe that women know what's best for themselves. When I first started this, I couldn't, I couldn't do this because it was a little bit overwhelming for me. We just kind of like normalize it at the same time. Don't make it like a big deal. If you know, someone stops and, and steps back, we don't like all huddle around them and like make feel out of it you know it's just kind of like part of the norm of our trainings around people having that decision and making that on their assessment while we do of course like check in with someone if someone is looking really overwhelmed we kind of do that in a way that doesn't put a lot of pressure on them so it sounds like it's very organized but at the same time there isn't a lot of pressure being put on you yeah now as men what can we do to be better allies? I know not committing assault is the bare minimum, but is there more we can do? I would start by saying just believe women. Believe women when they say that they are feeling uncomfortable in a situation and not minimizing that reaction. So often we hear people say like, you're being too sensitive or you're overreacting. You should just cut that language out of your vocabulary (laughs) Um, and recognize that when someone feels unsafe or feels uncomfortable, that reality is is a reality for these people. And so even though you might not feel that way, somebody else does. And it's time for maybe some reflection about what's occurring in that situation that as an ally, you could step up and interrupt so that those situations don't continue to be created. Yeah, and I would say... um have those conversations within your own community of male friends, you know, like without even women being present anywhere around, you know, when you see those behaviors coming up, when you hear that language, when you hear those jokes or whatever, um, if you feel like you're in a safe space to do that, speak up because, you know, the onus can't always be on the women or women identifying folks in your life to, you know, constantly be, uh, constantly be telling you when you're doing the wrong thing. You know, it's time, it's time for the internal community to sort of recognize their behaviors and hold each other accountable. Now to add to that, I have a son. And so perhaps a lot of what is needed for men needs to start when they're boys. So what do you wish parents like me would do in the raising of future men? I would say to allow your son space to learn about his own emotional needs. So self-reflection, learning that skill of being able to reflect on his own behaviors and his own emotional space and having a safe space to talk about that with another adult man is I think part of the cultural shift that is really going to allow our future generations of men the skill set to have emotionally um, like emotionally intelligent conversations with the women in their life and for them to have a skill set to to have their own for their own self-reflection and to feel safe in the community of men to talk about their feelings and to have feelings and to you know be held accountable when they need to be yeah I think what Mackenzie said is is pretty perfect um I don't have children so <laughs> I know that neither do I uh, <laughs> full disclosure I do not have children yet either but I am, I will say that I am a high school teacher. So I work with um, teenage youth. And what I see oftentimes is a, a lack of what Mackenzie was just suggesting, which is the space to have um, an emotionally sensitive conversation around boundaries and around 
healthy communication practices. And so if we can start those off at a younger age, um, I think we'll start to see those impacts pretty, pretty quickly, actually. Has Warrior Sisters then ever had parents coming to you or, or messaging Warrior Sisters about advice about raising boys? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> um, oh, it's just me. <laughs> uh, we haven't had advice about raising boys, but we ha- but we have had certain trainings where we we also bring in the male and male identified um, folks in our community to talk about bystander intervention and to talk about the varying levels of um, you know privilege and oppression that happen within a gendered context and how they can be um, better allies within the community. Now, the far right have been emboldened in the past several years. Has your organization gotten requests for training from activists and organizers, or have you had activists and organizers come to your classes? Um, I would say, I think like half of us are activists and organizers. (laughs) (laughs) Probably more than half. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Most of our trainers are involved in the activist world um, to some varying degree or another. And so we bring our trainings into our outside circles um, as well. Um, Have we done specific trainings with different activist organizations? Yes and no, in the sense that we've attended conferences, which are the hubs for these activist organizations and offered trainings there for people to participate in. Um, And we're also currently working to schedule some more of those at the moment. So maybe not always officially as Warrior Sisters, but as members, when you leave to your organizations, then you will take some of that training with you. Absolutely. So along with activists and organizers, what about interests from members of the LGBTQ community? Has that risen or has that always been a part of Warrior Sisters? So our organization has always been inclusive in in essence, and we're realizing now that we need to be more explicit in that inclusivity and to open our arms in a really broader way. So not just to say that, of course, the LGBTQ community is welcome with our community and is a part of our community, but that there's something we can also learn about our practices um, to best support our LGBTQ sisters as well. And... um, So we're seeking our own trainings as well um, to better refine our practices and also to just make sure that they're as accessible as possible. I would say that there is possibly a heightened need due to the nature of the rising right at the moment. Um, And that's something that we're recognizing in, in refining that practice internally at the moment. Now, a term both of you have used several times is empowerment, and that's all over the website, it's all over your materials. So how do you all incorporate empowerment into training? Is it just automatically part of it? Is training itself empowering or is it more than that? Do you have to be more explicit with empowerment in your philosophy? Or is there even a martial version or a self-defense version of feminism? Ooh, that's such a great question. (laughs) Is there a feminist version of self-defense? So empowerment isn't just a word, it's not just a concept, but it really is a form of communication, I think, at the roots of it. And so part of that is communicating in a way that creates a sense of trust between participants and trainers, um, and also in communicating um, a sense of accessibility. So as we're running our trainings, we're always offering support but we're also always offering positive feedback as well. And that faith in our participants when they say, this doesn't feel right, or what about this? Is this, this works better for me, that we trust them in acknowledging what's going to work for their bodies and acknowledging when they need space or when they want to practice something more intense or advanced. So essentially what we're saying is that the ball is in your court We're here to provide you with tools. How you want to use them is going to be up to what fits best for your needs. So historically, women haven't been allowed that in self-defense trainings. Women have been told, this is what you need to do. And if you don't, it's not going to work. And we know that's not the case. We know that any little bit that you can pull out is actually going to help because we know that any amount of resistance is often something that is going to impact um, the level of violence that you um, 
are being as being projected onto you. So having any form of resistance whatsoever is always going to be a strength. And that's something that we like to tell our women. Is there still an empowering aspect just to physical training itself? Like have either one of you noticed just somebody doing physical training, whether it's kicking or maybe it's just exercise and that in itself makes them feel, I know the point is to make you physically more powerful, but have you seen something change in somebody where emotionally, psychologically, you see something brightening up and lighting up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, 100%. I think we can both speak on this from personal experience as well, which is that like when I started training particularly, and I see this reflected in a lot of our participants, um, we don't feel great. We feel weird about taking up space or throwing a punch, exerting power in that way. We feel weird about yelling, about making loud noises. And so just to be able to get used to that feeling, it taps into this whole other side of at least me that I didn't realize I had. And that was super powerful for me to realize that I could be loud and that I could show strength and that I could take up space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I came from a background of being a very competitive soccer player. So I was already somebody who was, felt physically powerful in my space for the most part. Um, and was, um, you know, used to moving my body in powerful ways in that same sense, just, um, warrior sisters was a whole nother level for me. And that, um, there is still some overlying messages around being when you're working in another athletic space or in any other training capacity, where there is sometimes a little bit of this, like, um, sense of judgment around, being too strong or like having the possibility of not being conscientious enough of your partner, which is still like, you know, we see that conscientiousness all the way through our trainings when people are working with their partners. But, um, you know, just watching that, that, that little process that I was talking about earlier where they throw their first punch and it's like kind of awkward on the bag, but they like stop and they, they look around and all these other women are like just going at it and <laughs> Feel, they feel they're like it's like a it's like it is it's that like you like you mentioned it's a brightening you see it in their face they're like wait we can do this like I'm gonna do it some more and they hit a little bit and then they look around and they look at you and you're like that is awesome go for it be your most powerful self like just you know hit that bag or whatever and then they feel this ability to to fully step into their powerful embodied space and just having that freedom in a space that is completely safe for them is like, I know personally for me, it was like one of the most liberating experiences that's happened to me in, you know, 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty incredible um, how we can take that feeling in the moment and it just carries through the rest of the day and the rest of our lives. That one moment of power just really sets the tone um, for your day, like even right now, just hearing Mackenzie talking about it, I have this big grin on my face because I can, and that feeling is resonating with me right now. <laughs> and as men, when we hear women say liberating, I don't know if we always know what women mean by that something is liberating. So what do you mean by liberating? I would say, imagine, um, an anxiety being lifted from your shoulders So this is a really maybe possibly oversimplified example, but if you get a bill in the mail and you can't pay it right away, it kind of impacts your thoughts for the rest of your day or for the rest of your week until you're able to pay that bill. And then as soon as you pay that bill, you're like, oh, it's done. Like I'm free now. Um, And so that's something that I like to like compare it to is just that sense of like, wow, this burden, this anxiety that I've been carrying every single day all the time is starting to be lifted, is starting to lighten somewhat. And I feel like I can actually be my own true self because that anxiety is lifting. Yeah. I like to think about, you know, sometimes if you're like, you lay down at the end of the day and then you're laying there for a while and all of a sudden like your shoulders or your legs or something relax and you didn't even realize that they were set on tension for like your whole day. Yeah. It's just like sometimes a background program that's running all the time. Like one of those tabs that's left 
up and running all the time where as as women in particular we're we're conscious of the levels of violence that happen around us and um having that sense of true just just raw physical power is something that really gives you access to like freedom from that feeling even if it's just for in that training it carries with you for the rest of the day that you that you that your shoulders relaxed for that one moment um yeah, I think that that really makes an impact on, on the, it certainly makes an impact on me. And I think that, that makes an impact on our participants. So then inversely for me and other men to understand is as women, you all are feeling duress all the time. And liberation is that lifting of that duress, even if it's temporary. Yeah, that's a good way of reflecting that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that I know that in conversations that I've had with men, it's really difficult for them as an individual who may think that they project safety a lot to the to the women around them. It's really difficult for them to wrap their head around the fact that on a certain level, women don't feel safe walking around in their everyday lives. It's like a really difficult thing for them to wrap their head around. And I think that goes back to, you know, what Beck was saying about just listening and believing women when they're talking about it and sort of just being, you know, just ruminating on what that would feel like for you if that was your experience. Or maybe you've had an experience where you felt like that. And that it's up to us then to connect that and try to empathize. Yeah. Now, I've been seeing a slow but growing trend of nonprofit self-defense programs popping up. Do you have any advice for others out there who are thinking about starting their own nonprofit self-defense program or who just wanted to start an informal free self-defense program. And I know uh, you two mentioned earlier, the paperwork is probably the easiest part of it. <laughs> so, so what bit of advice do you all have? Um, the advice I would offer is you don't need to reinvent the wheel. This self-defense community is a large and growing community, and there are plenty of resources out there for people who are willing, who want to start something. Um, and people who are willing to help, whether that's in providing curriculum or reaching out to your local martial arts community about creating spaces or receiving training, um, just that it can be done and you don't have to do it alone. Yeah, I mean, when I think the Bex is, that's a really important point. I think people think that they have to be the ultimate expert before they are the one that shows up to make space for this conversation in their community. I think that that's a really common misconception. And I know, you know, even at the beginning of Warrior Sisters, like uh, most of the founders were not quote unquote, like, you know, experts in anything. They were just the ones that were willing to show up and hold space for it and to ask for those resources and make them available to the broader community. And I think that's the most important thing, just being, just showing up and showing up consistently and holding that space for your community. That's in line with the history of movements, right? Is that usually in movements, the founders are never experts. They're just the ones who decided we need to do something and then consistently did that. Yep. Consistency. That's a really big part. What's been the most rewarding thing about being a part of Warrior Sisters? Oh my oh. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a big question. What's the most? What's the most? Oh, man. I, I, for me, the most rewarding thing has been the community that I have gained through this organization and through this work. Um, I think a lot of times, especially um, in my generation, women were taught to kind of be pitted against themselves, um, to either be in competition with each other or to... Um, to believe in the narrative that women don't know how to communicate with each other. And this was a community that just shot down all of that socialization. And I've made an, an incredible friendships out of this that are supportive and are built off of believing in each other and facing our challenges together um, and becoming stronger for it. And uh, yeah, it's something that uh, I feel really, really um, passionately about and something that I'm very, very glad to have in my life. Yeah, I would say 
yes, also that times times a thousand. <laughs> I have got, I've gotten, I've grown into such an amazing community through Warrior Sisters. I've met so many really powerful, amazing women who are so multifaceted um, and passionate about so many different things that forming that community, I, maybe more so, and in, and in especially around the, you know, that central hub being self-defense around that being like, you know, kind of this, this um, circle of women that are all sort of training to defend themselves and defend other women. It's just like a very powerful space to come and just bask in. Um, and, uh, and on that same note, like being able to then like come as a participant and then turn around and now be working as part of the trainers collective and slowly be gaining skills to go out and teach this so that I know not only do I get to see like faces every single week as they light up when they like are first or ongoing or every single week they show up and they are getting to practice these skills but um that I know that um I'm furthering my skills so that if when ever it should happen that I move away from here you know I could be the one who showed up in that new community and um, possibly move into offering trainings myself. So there's a synergy that comes from it then that everybody who participates gets to actually participate in that synergy. Exactly. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> we, we do what we call like an intensity drill. I don't, I don't have much experience with uh, martial arts. So maybe this as well, but we will do like, um, you know, stations where people do just what what that whatever they can do really fast about the skills that we just practiced that day and like the intensity that builds up in the entire room while we're doing those is just like we'll leave you with a high for several days right like these women they're smiling and everyone is cheering and they're like yes you hit that so great hit it harder hit it harder and we're just like they're moving from station to station so they get to see every single other person in the group while they are practicing these skills in an intense environment, like an environment that's building up a lot of energy, but feels really safe and empowered in like this glowing container. It, that's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, I second that. That's also one of my favorite things as well. It's the, the whooping and the cheering of women um, just supporting somebody as they are going all out on a pad is something that I just cannot get over how wonderful that feels. It's like having a stadium of fans <laughs> cheering you on. So for listeners or people who are considering doing their first self-defense program, they should also know then that this can be fun. Definitely. Absolutely. Fun. Yeah. So fun. Yeah. That's the thing that was surprising to me when I started doing these trainings before I became a trainer was I was really nervous. You know, when you hear self-defense, you hear all the anxieties that come with that term because it's so loaded and I wasn't prepared for the amount of positivity that this was going to bring into my life. So don't, when you hear self-defense, I would advise people to think that um, there's opportunity for positivity and power that comes out of that training. It's not just the loaded term. This has been awesome. And I've learned a lot. And I'm sure the listeners have learned a lot. So if people want to find out more about Warrior Sisters, or have Warrior Sisters come to their town, or even donate some money, where can they get more information? Um, so they can visit our website, which is warrior-sisters.org. Um, and there, they'll be able to reach out and contact us to discover um, where we're offering trainings. We have regular trainings happening in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and we're about to um, reinitiate our trainings in Eugene, Oregon as well come January. Um, and then again, they can email us, um, which they'll find that contact information through our website. Um, although our email is, I'll just say it, is training at warrior-sisters.org. And they can request private trainings um, or just resources from us as well um, through there. They can also find us on Facebook. Y'all also have a really great Instagram, and I've enjoyed that for years. We do. We do have a great Instagram as well. Yeah, our Instagram, you'll be able to find photos that are uh, from our trainings as they're taking place. So it's a great place to keep up as well. Well, thanks, you two. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Now that's a show. 
We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show. Find us on patreon.com slash southpawpod.com.